So at this point, let's put our hands together for our head pastor. Here's Van Cochran. Yeah, thanks, everyone. <clears throat> hey, good morning. I have a joke for you today, but uh, I, I want to offend the least number of people with this joke. So I need to ask, how many of you are either from or have roots in Kentucky? Okay, a lot of you. Okay. How about uh, West Virginia? Anybody from West Virginia here? One? Anybody else? All right. I, I, I know you, so I'm going to go ahead with the joke, all right? <laughs> Here it is. Now, this is a rhetorical question. If you know the answer already, don't shout it out, okay? But uh, how, do you, how do we know that the toothbrush was invented in West Virginia? Answer, if it had been invented anywhere else, it would have been called the teeth brush. Come on. I'll give you a minute. So just in fairness to... Um, to West Virginia, I'll tell a joke about pastors now, okay? So there was a pastor that had preached a message and he walked down off the platform and a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, that was a fantastic message. And he, in a kind of like religious tones, he said, oh, that wasn't me, that was the Lord. And she took a step back and said, well, it wasn't that good. Yes, so that's why I just say thank you. Yeah, even if you're just saying it to be nice, it's thank you, that's fine. All right, if you were here last week, you know that we just started a new series called Power Outside the Walls. And our intent in this is to help each one of us be better equipped at a heart level and and, in other ways to be better equipped to help a friend, family member, a neighbor, a coworker meet Jesus to help us to have the type of heart attitude and the type of perspective of life and of people that will enable us to take the power of Christ outside the walls of the church building into life because that's what Jesus did, you know. Jesus did not rent a big auditorium and then hand out flyers and tell people to come at a certain time each week and he would talk to them. Obviously, that's what we do in this culture, but Jesus actually went out and moved among people, and everywhere he went, he touched people's lives with the life and power of God. That's why we're here. That's the mission. It is not for us to come and to hear something that makes us feel better about life or makes us enjoy life more, but, or even to learn something new about God. Even that, all of it has the intent of us personally growing closer to Jesus, but as well in the process of that, growing more intent upon being part of the mission of Jesus, which is to take the message of the kingdom into the whole world. And that starts every Sunday as we leave uh, this building and step out the doors. So last week, I tried to help us uh, understand a little better some of the cultural things we're dealing with today. And uh, I talked about the difference uh, between two different types of cultural mindsets. And I want to review that this morning because this is so important that we understand this. That there are cultural mindsets. Four main ones are a guilt-based culture, a shame-based culture, a family-based culture, and a power-based culture. But we're just looking at two of these because two of them are really relevant to us. 
The first one is the guilt-based culture. And that's relevant because for the last hundred years or longer, we have lived in a guilt-based culture. Now, what I mean by that is not a culture where everyone feels guilty all the time, but a culture that understands what real guilt is, real culpability, because it understands the difference between right and wrong. And so I have a list of characteristics of a guilt-based culture that I put together just to help us understand it a little bit better. So let's take a quick look at that. So first of all, in a guilt-based culture, there is a focus on personal behavior. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's what I do and, and how I conduct myself in the culture. Now the standard for that behavior, it's an external standard of right and wrong. It's not just what I think is right, and you might think that something else is right, or what I think is wrong. No, it's not every man for himself. It is, there's an external standard. And uh, oftentimes in guilt-based cultures, that external standard is acquired from God or for some, some concept of who God is. And so, focus on individual behavior, standard of right and wrong, and what maintains order in the culture? Individual responsibility and then being held accountable for, for your actions. But individual responsibility holds the culture together. Now, finally, there, there, there is this basic concept of doing right and wrong and the need for restitution. And so that's, that's important to understand. But now, when we compare it to shame-based, I think you'll see it even more clearly. In a shame-based culture, we have, we have a list of shame-based uh, values here as well we're going to take a quick look at. In a shame-based culture, the focus isn't on behavior, it's on worth. It's on value. What value do you bring to the culture? And for that reason, a shame-based culture is more focused on identity. So the, the value is the, the standard of whether or not a person is valued in the culture has to do with community approval. So the the external standard in a shame-based culture is community approval. And so if the majority thinks that something's wrong and you think it's okay, then you are going to bear the, the, um, the wrath of the community because you're in disagreement with the community. So community conformity maintains order. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a law or it's not law-based. It is conformity-based. And if you do something that steps outside community conformity, you have brought shame on yourself, on your family, and on your community. And consequently, uh, there's a concept, you know, shame is pride. Really, it's pride because it's, it's making so much out of myself that I feel... It's focusing everything back on myself, and so because of because of that, there's this concept of pride and the need for self abasement. So in guilt based, it was the concept of doing wrong and the need for restitution. In shame based, there's this pride thing going on, and it is self abasement. So. In a shame-based culture, if I'm, if I'm living you know, at this level right here and suddenly I fail and I do something that is just this big failure, then what I have to do is abase myself. I have to lower myself and I have to put myself in line with where I should really fit in that culture's eyes. 
And what that does is it, it attacks the very value of the person. It makes the person themselves feel like they really have no value unless they conform to the community standard. This is why in some cultures, um, well, let me tell you this in a moment. First, I want to say this. In a guilt-based culture, you could say this. You did something wrong, so change. Okay? Pay for what you did wrong. Change, and then change. In a shame-based culture, here's what you would hear. You're different. You're not like everybody else. There's something wrong with you, so leave. That's shame-based. Leave. We don't want you around. And whether that actually happens in a physical sense of someone being told to leave or they're just being shunned or looked down on or rejected by the community, the, the concept is we're going to cut you out from the rest because you, you no longer fit here. This is why in shame-based cultures, when, um, well, in, in war, when admirals or generals in shame-based cultures lose a battle, they no longer have any value to the culture. They brought shame on themselves, and there's nothing they can, they can't abase themselves enough to make up for it. The only thing they can do is bless that culture by removing themselves from the culture and killing themselves. And so a shame-based culture ultimately has to do with, and it impacts the people in it at a level of identity. Now, for a guilt-based culture, which we have been living in, um, in in the guilt-based cultural mindset, you're used to the idea of this is right and this is wrong. And uh, there has to be, someone has to pay for the wrong. There has to be restitution for the wrong. And so in a guilt-based culture, the, the, main, the main presentation of the gospel can be you're a sinner, God judges sin, and you need forgiveness. And in a guilt-based culture, people will respond to that. Now, even in a guilt-based culture, I believe there's another approach that was, that's better because it's biblical. Now, in a shame-based culture, I'll tell you that in just a moment, but in a shame-based culture, uh, if, if, you, if you go with this lead of you're a sinner and God hates sin and God's, God's going to judge you for your sin, in that culture, because there is this assault against the identity, because people in a shame-based culture already have no solid identity of who they are, what they hear is you're a horrible person, you're a bad person, God hates you, God's sick of you. And, and man, you're going to be lucky if God doesn't just smash you right now. That's what they hear. And that's not the gospel. That's not even close to the gospel. And so the, 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 in the shame-based culture, the lead element of the gospel has to be God's goodness. It's God's goodness. And, I, and as I said, I think that should have been the lead element even in a guilt-based culture. And that's because the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the severity of God, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But especially in a culture that is shame-based, where, where people are so struggling with, with who they are and what value they have, they need to know God's goodness. They need to know God's compassion. They need to go know God's power and life to change them and to bring them back into that right standing that they were created with. 
And so today what we're going to do is look at, um, we're just going to look at those three points very quickly as a review. And then we're going to look at uh, the story of the woman at the well, if you're familiar with that. It's, it's a great story about Jesus and Jesus encountering this woman um, off all by in a lonely spot by a well on a hot day. And his interaction with her uh, is just going to open up for us a deeper understanding of how a shame-based situation, a shame-based culture responds to the truth of the gospel. Now, let me say this before I go further. Whether we're talking about guilt-based or shame-based, there is sin, okay? And, and there is the need for forgiveness, and there is Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be set free, so that we could become new. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead so we could become new, new. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But it's, it's what is the lead element? How, how do you impact a person's heart in our culture today? And it, it, the, the, first, the first and most important thing is an understanding of God's goodness. And just this understanding that God is not angry with everybody. He's not out there. Um, where, where am I here? Uh, God, God is good. God's good. In this whole guilt-based thinking, what it ultimately leads to is, well, I'm guilty, and this bad thing happened to me, so that must be God punishing me. That must be God. It was God that, that took my child. It was God that caused that car accident that has so devastated my life and our family's life with all the financial burdens and all of the health issues. You know, it, 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 I, I, I must be the one that did something wrong and I'm suffering with this cancer or whatever. That's all guilt-based thinking. And it's kind of a logical extension of guilt-based thinking, but it's not right thinking. Because God is good. And God doesn't punish his children by giving them cancer. God doesn't punish his children by causing uh, terrible car accidents. God's good. He's kind. He's merciful. I quoted this verse earlier, but Romans 2, 4, let's look at it. This is my own translation of it. Uh, But it says, the kindness of God is intended to lead you to change your heart toward him. Now, the, the literal translation would be lead you to repentance but what repentance really means is change your mind and your heart towards God last week I showed that God has already taken care of sin he's already reconciled himself to us he's already done everything to take everything out of the way and so he's already saying okay I've taken care of everything here I am and now the call is to us as human beings, to reconcile ourselves to God. And you might say, well, what do I have to reconcile with, you know, God's perfect. How, he hasn't done anything to, to, to wrong, so how do I have to reconcile myself to him? Well, I have to change the way I think about him. Because if I do think that he has held back on me, if I think that he's allowed or done bad things in my life to teach me a lesson or you know, that whole thing, well, I, we know this is a horrible thing that happened, but God, it's really a good thing. Uh, if, if I think like that, then I probably have built up some wrong attitudes towards God, some mistrust towards God, because you never know what he's going to do to you. You never know. He might make me marry someone I don't love, or he might tell me to quit my job and go to Africa, and I don't want to do something like that, or, or, it, or on and on. And so what we have to do is shift our thinking and say, okay, God is good, God's kind, God's merciful, and therefore, why wouldn't I want to turn to him? 
Why wouldn't I want to reconcile in my mind who he is and turn to him and embrace him? And so the kindness of God, the word kindness can be translated goodness. I I allowed it to stay as kindness, but it, it means goodness. And it is this, this is important. It is the opposite of severity and harshness. It's the opposite of severity and harshness. Have any of you ever had a boss that was kind of harsh? Do you, do you want to go to that boss and say, hey, can I have an extra day off? <laughs> that harsh, severe boss, you don't want to ask them for anything because they're going to humiliate you. You don't want to go to them. And why would we want to go to God if he was harsh and severe? But God is good. He's kind. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And that's why we turn to him. And so this whole idea of God's goodness has to be the lead element in sharing the gospel today. And what we have to do as believers is just get that more and more and more into our hearts and minds that God is good. I really got to, the more convinced I am of that, and truthfully, all of us are probably moving that direction. None of us have probably really arrived there yet in a full understanding of the goodness of God. But I need to be moving in that direction of understanding more and more and more his goodness and his incredible love for us. So you you really even ask, well, how how good is God? Look at this in Matthew 9.13. Matthew 9.13 says this. Jesus is uh, in this debate with the Pharisees who are legalistic, self-righteous people who judge others all the time. Their view of God is that God is severe and God is harsh. And consequently, they are severe and harsh. And let me tell you, there's a truth. There's this truth that we become what we view God to be. If I view God as harsh and severe, then I am going to become a harsh and severe person. If I really begin to grasp this concept of God's goodness and compassion and mercy and kindness, then I will gravitate in my heart to become more and more like that. But in this passage, Jesus says to these legalistic, harsh-minded people, he says, go and learn what this means. And he quotes the Old Testament where God says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. And then Jesus says, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What he meant by righteous was self-righteous. I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous, and he's he's referring to the people he's talking to, the self-righteous Pharisees, but I came to call those who understand that they are sinners. And he says, go and learn this. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Now, in that day, they made literal animal sacrifices. They would go to the temple and make sacrifices. And these Pharisees added so many things to their sacrificial list of things they did, of how often they prayed and the things they did for other people. And they thought that they were so righteous And what Jesus is saying, God's not looking for all of that human effort. He's looking for you to have a heart like him. What he desires is that you would have a heart of compassion just like he has. So go and learn that. Learn what it means to say, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And you might say today, well, we don't make animal sacrifices today, so that doesn't apply to me. But some of us uh, are so adept at 
really positioning ourselves in our own minds and thinking, you know, I go to church every week, I tithe, I read the Bible, I pray, I do all these good things, I serve, and, and we feel righteous because of that. We're not righteous because of those things we do, we're righteous because of who Jesus is and what he has made us, what well, he's given us his righteousness, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But to recognize that's not what God's looking for. He's not looking for someone that's working real hard so he'll pat them on the shoulder. He's looking for someone who says, God, I want your heart. I want your heart. I want a heart of compassion. I want to experience your compassion for people. And when we learn that and when we begin to understand that and, and, and have it in our lives and our hearts, that's what, that's, that's what blesses the Father. So... Uh, th- this, this second point is so important. Power comes through compassion. It comes through compassion. And, and so when you and I understand the compassion of God, and really the word compassion actually, it's from a, a Greek word that means like your visceral area, like from your rib cage down to your upper abdomen. And, you know, it's easy to, if, if you have something going on, you're worried or you're nervous, you feel it right here, don't you? And we also feel compassion right there. And so the word compassion is a word that refers to actual phys- being physically moved towards someone else's plight, towards a situation someone else is in, that I, I feel the emotion that impacts me physically towards their situation and the pain they're in. And so in Mark 1.41, Jesus said this. Um, he said, it, well, it says here that this, this situation here, uh, a leper has come to Jesus. And if you understand leprosy, it would be the equivalent of flesh-eating bacteria we read about where like here, fingers are falling off, ear, noses fall off because they're being consumed by leprosy and skin's falling off. And you didn't want to touch a leper for a whole bunch of reasons. But this leper comes to Jesus and asks, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And, and he says, I, I want to be cleansed. And so Jesus, it says, moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. He said, I am willing, be healed. Now here's what compassion does for us. It moves us to action. It moves us to do something and it moves us to cross over what we would consider to be the comfortable lines that we don't want to cross. I'm uncomfortable laying my hand on a leper. Jesus doesn't think that. He puts his hand on this person and heals him. And so compassion will move us to step outside the normal realm of our comfort zone so that we can release the love and the power of God into people's lives. So compassion is crucial. And um, if you remember last week, I shared a story about Lori and I, um, and we saw a man that, that did something that we thought was kind of socially inappropriate. And then later, I, I had a thought come into my mind about why he did that. And uh, go back and listen to last week's message. I don't have time to relay the whole story. But that thought that came into my mind gave this man a backstory that gave me compassion for him. And when I, when I went through this backstory, I thought, okay, well, that's why this man did this. And I think it was God revealing that to me, okay? So last week, what I said was, find people and make up a backstory for them. Do you remember that? Okay, if you were here. If you weren't here, then um, that, that's, that's what happened. I said, make it up. Anybody try that? 
Okay, I tried that a few times this week, and actually making up a story is not always easy, as I thought. So here's what I recommend. Now I'm revising that, all right? Here's the revised version. You see someone that maybe you find irritating or that isn't doing what you think they should do, ask God to give you their backstory. Just ask God, God, what's going on in that person's life? Show me something of what's happening. And when you ask that question and a thought drops into your mind, financial failure, or you see a picture of an angry face and a little child, uh, you're getting something of their backstory. God's revealing that to you. And when you engage with that, compassion's gonna flow. The compassion of God's gonna flow through our hearts. So the third thing is real simple, and that is the promise of restoration. This is a crucial thing for our culture. You can become what God created you to be. You can, you, can, you can fulfill God's original design. And I use that term orig, uh, original righteousness because there's a theological term original sin that some of us might be familiar with, some might not. But it refers to Adam and Eve sinning and how their sin then spread to all humanity and has caused all of the grief and the chaos in, in humanity today. But original righteousness was what they were created with. They were created perfect. They were created without any flaw or fault. And, and that's what the word righteous means. It doesn't mean that you read the Bible all the time. It doesn't mean that you do a lot of good things. Righteous simply means things are lined up right, like, like level and plumb if you're a carpenter. Um, I, I have a, a watch at home, a gold watch that belonged to my great-grandfather for working for the railroad for 25 years. It no longer works. Now, it's not righteous because it's not, it's not connected right. Things aren't square inside of it. The springs are worn out, and, the, and, and I imagine some of the uh, gears are not meshing right. But what if I took it to a jeweler and he took all those parts out, put all brand new parts in so that everything meshed perfectly and, and all of the metal was right? It would be righteous then. It, 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 that would be the word that would describe it. It's right. It's right according to its design. And so you can, be, you, can, you can come back to this original state that God designed you for. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't mean new in the sense that I'm a totally new person. I still have the same DNA. I still have the same memories. If I committed crimes before I got saved, before I came to know Jesus, I'm still accountable for them. But what it means is new in the sense of fresh and pure and unused. Not new in time, but new in freshness and and purity. And so you can be made fresh and new just like you were designed to be at creation. And that's what speaks to the identity issue. And that's, that's, that's where our culture really, that's what our culture really needs to hear today. But it starts with the goodness of God. And then it's followed up with us being compassionate people and engaging with people on a basis of compassion. And so the illustration I wanted to use is of Jesus and this woman. And uh, the setup for this is that Jesus was in Jerusalem. Things were heating up for him there, opposition starting to increase. And he has to go, he's, he's leaving Jerusalem because it's not time yet for him to have a full confrontation with his uh, enemies. And so the Bible says he had to go through Samaria. 
Well, the, the literal truth is he didn't have to go through Samaria geographically. Geographically, it would have been uh, just as easy for him to go down to the Jordan River and walk up the Jordan River Valley. He's in Jerusalem. He's going to Galilee, which is probably 25 miles north of where he is. And um, to get there, he could have gone down to the river and then up that valley, and then he's in Galilee. But instead, it says he had to go through Samaria, which was a more rigorous trek. It's through mountain territory. And the had to there wasn't a geographical must. It was a a moral must or a spiritual must. It was God intended for him to meet this woman at this well. And for that to happen, he had to go through Samaria. That's, that's, That's what it's saying. And so as we read the story, it says this. It says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Joseph had given to his son, that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is there, the sixth hour means right at the hottest point of the day, midday, sun's beating down, Jesus is worn out, he sends his disciples into town to buy some food, and as he's sitting there, waiting for them to come back, along comes this woman. And it says here, a woman from Samaria came, this is John 4, 7, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, the woman is shocked because Samaritans don't have any dealings with Jews and vice versa. They hate each other, in fact. There's this ethnic thing, religious thing between them that they are enemies. And so the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's more than just dealings with Samaritans that's going on here. There is this ethnic boundary and this hatred between these two groups that Jesus has to, uh, that Jesus has to move past. But, but there's more than that because this woman is here in the middle of the day uh, for some reason. Most of the women come early in the morning. They would come when it's still cool out. And yet this woman comes by herself at the hottest time of the day. That would tell Jesus that she's bearing some shame there's some, there's some pain in her life. There's some shame that the other women don't want to spend time with her. And, and so even that would make her a questionable person uh, for Jesus to be interacting with. And when the disciples come back, they're stunned. It says they're shocked to see Jesus talking to this woman because there's something about her that they see and they're thinking, yeah, we're going to steer clear here. Jesus engages with her in a personal heart-to-heart basis. And what we're going to find out later is that this woman is living with a man she's not married to. She's been married multiple times in her past. And so people in the village even would look at her and possibly, well, not possibly, they would look at her and think that, that she had some moral issues, that she was a little bit too loose and that, that, that's why she couldn't be there when the other women were there. But Jesus sees her differently than that. And I, and I want to ask the question, how is it? Why is it that Jesus sees her different than that? Why doesn't he see her as a Samaritan? Do you know, the Jewish rabbis said that a Jewish man wasn't allowed to talk to a Samaritan woman even. And so it wasn't just uh, Jews and Samaritans. It was Jewish males talking to Samaritan females was forbidden. 
And so how was it that Jesus saw her as something different? And I think the key is what we see in verses five and six, right there at the beginning. It says that this was a field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, I I was reading scripture a couple of months ago, and I was reading passages that I was so familiar with, I didn't even want to read them. I'm thinking, I know this. I know the story inside out and upside down. But I'm, I, and, and this was one of the passages, and I read it day after day, and, and I kept asking, why is this? Why does he say that Jacob gave this plot of ground to his son, Joseph? And it dawned on me one day, this was the answer, and this is, this is how Jesus viewed this woman. Joseph had been a son that was stolen from his father, Jacob. He had been kidnapped and sold into slavery. And Jacob mourned for him. Jacob thought he was dead. And and he mourned for his son. And he would have mourned for him all all of his days. But but later in life, Joseph had not died. And he actually uh, prospered in the land he had been sold into. He was sold in Egypt as a slave. He ended up prospering there. And Jacob and Joseph were restored in their relationship. And I thought, this is how Jesus views this woman. Not as a woman with loose morals or can't, doesn't know how to stay married or, or anything like that. Not as a Samaritan. He views her as a daughter who was stolen from her father. And her father wants her back. And looking at her through that lens, how could you have anything other than compassion? How can you have anything other than love for her? And so Jesus presses into this. She's stunned that he had talked to her. But John 4.10, um, Jesus uh, does what we'd call, he elevates the conversation. He doesn't get involved in the, the arguments about Samaritans versus Jews. Jesus answered her and he said this, listen to this. Remember, goodness of God, compassion, and the um, promise of restoration. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, God's good. Did you know God has gifts for you? Did you know that God cares about you? Did you know that God is good and and he loves you and he has something for you? If you knew the gift of God, and Jesus is speaking of himself in this case, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, who speaks, the one who's speaking, uh, he's referring to himself and he said, if you knew who I really was, And what this does is this adds some mystery to the whole thing and the hope of further revelation. If you knew, and then there's the hope, well, am I gonna get to know who you are? Because Jesus as the Messiah is the embodiment of God's compassion. So you can even look at that and say, if you knew who it was, if you knew the compassion of the person speaking to you, if you knew the role of this person speaking to you. And then the third thing he goes on to say is you'd say to him, give me a drink. And and you you would have asked him, um, give me a drink. And he would have given you living water, living water. She doesn't understand what that means at this point, Uh, probably Literally, living water would have been a, an artesian well or a bubbling brook, but Jesus defines it later in John four fourteen. They interact a little, and she says, "Well, you don't have a you don't have any bucket to draw water. How are you going to get this living water?" And Jesus in John four fourteen says, "The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life." That is the promise of going back to original design, that you can be what God created you to be. 
He didn't create you to live in impatience and fear and anger and anxiety and defeat and shame. He didn't create you for that. He created you to walk in his joy. He created you to be a patient, loving person and to have relationships with other people where they smile when they see you coming and they're happy to have you walk into the room because you carry the presence of God in you and and you you share that presence everywhere you go. That's what you were created for. And so right here, Jesus is laying all of these things out for this woman who's living in this intense shame. But as it goes on... um, she, she says, yes, I want that water. Give me that water. She says, I want it. And so Jesus says this to her. Okay, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, you might think if you're more like from that old line of thinking, the law-based thinking and the we got to preach hard on sin type of thinking, you might think, okay, right now, this is where he turns down the thumb screws. This is where he's really revealing her sin and he's going to call her to account. That's not what's happening here at all. What he's doing is he is letting her know that he understands her pain. He's letting her know that he understands the shame she's lived with, that she doesn't have to. You see, women couldn't divorce men in those days. She didn't divorce her husbands. They divorced her. Five times she had been married. Five times a husband had found something he didn't like about her and had rejected her. Can you imagine the pain and the shame she lived with? I mean, how many of us here have had a friend, a daughter, a a sister, close friend, or a son Someone who was betrayed and rejected in, in a marital relationship. And you know the pain of that. We know the pain of that. But, but you understand. And, and this is the heart of the father towards this woman. Not only has she been stolen from him at birth, but she has been abused throughout her lifetime. She's not this horrible, immoral woman. She's a woman who's been abused. And Jesus sees that. And, and he's letting her know. You know, it, otherwise, why would she go back to the village as what she does next and tell everybody, hey, I just met this man who uh, told me everything about myself. If, if Jesus had been harsh and severe in this and revealing her sin, she wouldn't have done that. And so he, he's, he's, he is letting her know that it's okay because he knows everything that's happened in her life. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, this is the first time Jesus himself reveals himself as Messiah to another person. And so, in effect, he's saying, you you might have heard from everyone you know that you should be ashamed. You might have heard from everyone you know that you're defective, that you're a reject, that there's something wrong with you. That's why all these men would not stay married to you. But I'm telling you this, I'm the Messiah. I walked all the way here just to see you. I came here just for you. I came here to reveal myself to you and to reveal the love of the Father to you and the compassion of God. So you don't have to live in shame any longer. You don't have, you, you, you don't, you don't have to walk in shame. And so he's freeing her in everything he's doing here. And 
it's just this amazing, amazing heart that Jesus had of compassion that you and I can enter into because if you know Jesus, then he's in you. If you know Jesus, then he's in you. And, and I want to tell you, as, as you and I, the most important thing is not that we have the right technique or we have the right words or we say the right thing at the right time, the right moment. The, the, none of that is as important as you and I having the compassion of God in our hearts, understanding the goodness of God and having a message of restoration for the world out there because that's, that's what they need. That's what our culture needs. So, thank you, Jesus. Um, Give us this heart. Show us more of your goodness. Let us see your goodness more fully. Give us your compassion so that we can share this message of restoration with broken hearts in a way that would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to receive our offering right now, so before we go on with the service, so if you're on the left side of the uh, aisle, would you please grab that basket and pass it across? Um, If you've never checked it out, the app that we have is valuable for a couple of reasons. You can give through it. It also has our program and announcements are all on the app every week as well, so anything you miss, you can check out there. Um, Pick up one of the programs on the way out, or I think even in the restroom, there are little tags that you can you can use to uh, download the app. But uh, thank you for giving. Thank you for being generous. It advances the kingdom. We get to be part of God's work in advancing his kingdom through giving. And that's, that's a real blessed thing. So Father, bless this offering. We just pray you bless it. Use it to advance. Use it to reach thousands of people, men and women who are locked in shame, just like this woman that Jesus met at the well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to have baptism here. Uh, Sarah um, Anderson is going to come back up and introduce that to us and why we're doing it the way we are. But if you like to worship at the front, we would ask you to wait until the baptism is over and then come to the front to worship. And we are going to bring the other children from the back that are not being baptized out here because we want them to, to be part of it and to see what's happening. But parents, I have to ask you, if your child runs from the front to you, please do not take them with you. Because what's going to happen then later is we're going to be counting noses back there and we're going to be missing a child. Panic will ensue and all sorts of things. So, um, Sarah, lead us ahead here. All right. I'm really excited to have a kids-only baptism today.